Hello everyone and welcome to our second episode of Mon the Workers, a podcast brought to you by Scottish Trade Union Congress. Today we're joined by Eve Livingston, a writer based in Glasgow who on the 20th of September released her first book, Make Bosses Pay, Why We Need Unions, with Pluto Press. Eve has written for The Guardian, Observer, Morningstar and many more, covering social affairs, industrial relations, politics and inequalities. Hi Eve, it's so nice to see you. Yeah, hi, it's really nice to be here. Yeah, I'm excited about this podcast and excited to chat about the the book. So first of all, we were lucky enough to get an advanced copy of the book and I think it's brilliant. Obviously, Ewan and I and Karina, who's editing this podcast, we we all work in the trade union movement and while we're not complete experts on everything labour-related, small L, we did come to this book with a lot of prior knowledge and experience, but I thought the book was really informative and there were still bits that I learned from. I think my main takeaway from it is that while it's marketed and sort of aimed at young people with Pluto Press, I think a lot of older trade unionists could learn a lot from it. And I'd go as far to say that I think it's equally as valuable for young and older workers. Yeah, I totally agree with, with, with that, Rachel. I think it definitely had a lot of valuable insights that validate a lot of concerns of young workers and young trade unionists, but it could potentially be quite useful for older trade unionists to, to read as well. I, I thought it felt really accessible even though we were discussing some potentially more complex ideas it felt quite easy to digest oh thank you very much i'm really pleased to hear you say that as well because um yeah it is aimed at kind of new trade unionists or new would-be trade unionists but um as i was writing it i did feel like i hoped that there would be takeaways for kind of people like yourselves and um other kind of more established trade unionists who kind of do already have a bit of that knowledge so um yeah thank you for saying that yeah no problem so Eve's going to start us off with a, a reading from the book yeah thank you so this reading comes from um chapter one which is called um why unions and it's the the very beginning of that chapter have you ever had a boss who bullied or sexually harassed you or who ignored your complaint when another member of staff did How about one who faked your payslips and kept your tax contributions for themselves? Or who rejected your request for leave while your mother was dying or while you were having a mental health crisis? Who wouldn't turn up the heating when the office was freezing? A boss who paid you less than your colleagues and then said you weren't a team player when you complained? One who refused you shifts and then fired you for not working enough hours? Who demanded you arrive 10 minutes early and penalised you for leaving on time despite paying you below minimum wage and by the hour? who sacked you after seven years of service in the midst of a global pandemic, who paid you so little you had to claim benefits and use food banks, who put you under so much pressure you drove your car into a tree in an attempt to take your own life. These are not extreme examples cooked up to misrepresent the boss class by focusing on a few bad apples. They are real life experiences recounted to me by a range of workers of different backgrounds and in different sectors throughout the course of researching and writing this book. And they only scratch the surface of the egregious power abuses that unions and their members confront on a daily basis. If you haven't personally been mistreated at work, your friend, sibling, parent, partner or colleague has, this kind of conflict is a feature of work. The interests of bosses and workers are not just different but opposed and in a constant tug of war. We need to sell our labour at a rate that allows us to live a decent life while they want to extract it at as low a price as possible for as big a gain as possible. We rely on them for survival, but we're just one of many interchangeable and disposable workers they can pick up and drop as it suits them. Workers are the largest group in society, 
but power is concentrated with bosses. They choose how much to cede to you. The cards are always stacked in their favour. Marx wrote of this dynamic when he defined labour power as a worker's capacity to produce goods and services. It is this which a worker sells to the capitalist class, the owners of the means of production, who gain from their purchase not just the labour, but the products of it too. And this is capital, the accumulation of product profit at the expense of the working class who produce it. Because we're indoctrinated into the world of wage labour from childhood, watching parents go to work each day, taking on Saturday and after-school jobs for pocket money, constantly being asked what we want to be when we grow up, and knowing instinctively it's a question about paid work, it can seem like an inevitable and obvious feature of society. But take a step back for a moment and consider that our workplaces, where we spend one third of our lives toiling to prop up the other third not spent sleeping, can also be the places where we're most in danger, where we're most exploited and where we're least in control. One of the relationships which has the most control over our lives is also one of the most fundamentally imbalanced. Put simply, this is why we unionise. As individuals against capital, we're largely disposable, replaceable and ultimately powerless. But the reverse is true of a collective working class. The bosses rely on us to make their profits. Collectivism shifts this power dynamic, clawing back some control from capitalism's gatekeepers to those of us at its mercy. Brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, thanks um, for that. Yeah, I really like the part about um, sort of highlighting the real fundamental differences of interest between workers and bosses and how it is a tug of war. And your your boss doesn't necessarily have your best interests at heart. I think that can be very sort of important for younger workers to hear that going into a workplace mm -hmm. particularly like what you say about um bad apples <laughs> i think it's good to to kind of um shed light on that argument <laughs> because a lot of i feel as though a lot of people feel that way but this is happening across all sectors and it's happening unfortunately to, to young people i'm interested to know eve how how did you get involved with trade union in the in the first place? Was it was did something trigger it or was it kind of always something that you were interested in? Yeah, so I think my experience kind of echoes actually a lot of um, young trade unionists, which is and the research backs this up as well, which is that those kind of young workers who are in trade unions tend to come to them because they've got some prior knowledge, like through often through their families, which is the case um, for me, because I come from a, a kind of working class background where my parents were in trade unions. So for me, it was always just like a, a part of my life. It was always just something I was going to do, no matter what kind of job it was that I was going into. I just knew that um, you know, as much as you kind of go along to your induction and get your locker and all that, you also just join the union. It's just a kind of part of what you should do. Um, there, there don't seem to be so many new trade unionists joining kind of um, off the back of their own research, which I suppose is something we can we can get into. Um, but that's kind of one of the premises of the of the book, really, is that um, yeah, unions need to be kind of reaching out beyond those um, people who've already got that kind of relationship and knowledge. Yeah, 100%. And I think this book this book itself will be quite a good sort of way to do that as well. And hopefully um, a lot of young people will read it. Um, how did, I just wanted to ask a bit about how the book came about in the first place. Yeah, so the book is part of um, a series actually at Pluto Press called Outspoken, which is um, a series of books aimed at that kind of younger audience, so sort of late teens, early 20s. Um, and the idea wasn't to do sort of, um, you know, political introductions. It was to kind of recognise that that audience are capable of dealing with more complex and kind of interesting um, discussions of political issues, but that they're not often catered to um, kind of specifically. 
So um, Pluto approached me and asked me if I would be interested in writing a book for the series. Um, and they didn't stipulate what it should be about. They just kind of said that the aims of the series were, um, you know, this sort of thing about, you know, how we sort of tackle um, injustice in society and how we improve diversity and platform underrepresented voices and, and all of these things. Um, and so it seemed like pretty obvious to me kind of early on that the book should be about unions because to my mind they are the best vehicle that we have for doing all those things they're the best way that um that we can kind of improve our own lot in the workplace but also sort of shift things in society at large um and also there is this sort of you know existential challenge to unions in terms of reaching out to younger workers um which are exactly the demographic the book's aimed at so I kind of settled on the unions idea pretty early on really um and yeah it just it just felt important to me to um for there to be a space where um we could talk about unions and how important they were and how kind of vital they are but also where we can talk about what they could be doing better I think we kind of missed that in a lot of the coverage of unions because we either get people who for good reason are quite defensive of unions, you know, kind of union insiders whose job it is to defend everything that the union does. Um, or we get kind of bad faith commentators attacking unions. Um, and there isn't very much space in between for a kind of perspective from someone like me who feels really passionately about the importance of unions and their role, um, but also kind of recognises that there are things they could be doing differently. So it, it felt like I had a kind of unique opportunity to um, to come from that perspective, I suppose. Yeah, and bring a bit of nuance um, to it where there's a, a lack of nuance sometimes. Mm, exactly. Can you talk us through a bit about the process of writing the book, you know, the people that you spoke to and how that informed the book and who your sort of favourite or most interesting people you spoke to were? Yeah, so um, I suppose the, the process of, of kind of writing the book in terms of the nuts and bolts of it were that I'd put together a sort of plan of chapters, um, so sort of themes that I thought were important. And I'd kind of identified different people to speak to under those themes. Um, and they were, it was important to me that they were from all all different kind of bits of the union movement and had all different relationships to it. So I think that's also something that gets missed in the mainstream conversation is the sort of diversity of experience within the union movement. So um, it's not just, you know, your kind of um, Len McCluskey's or um, Francis O'Grady's. It's also kind of um, ordinary organisers on the ground and lay members and staff members kind of being paid to work in a union. Um, there's all these different experiences. So I wanted to make sure I kind of captured all of those. Um, and also that there was a diversity in terms of kind of, you know, identities, but also like geography. So all across the UK, um, different types of unions representing different types of workforces. Um, and then also some perspectives from kind of academics um, and experts. So there's um, someone from Unions 21, the sort of think tank um, in there as well. Um, and there's also um, Don Butler MP is in there talking about how um, unions kind of shaped her um, career and her kind of political career and goals um, since since she kind of stopped working in the union movement. Um, so yeah, so I can't, I couldn't pick a favourite out of all those people, um, honestly, not just for kind of, not just to be sort of politically correct, but genuinely because they each brought something like really interesting and a kind of different perspective. Um, and they, they, they actually changed, those conversations changed what I had initially kind of thought of as the, um, 
chapter structure. So some of the ideas remained the same, but some of the things that came through in the conversations um, weren't things that I'd kind of initially thought would, would be a big part of the book, but came through really clearly in all the research. Um, so yeah, I was really grateful to, um, to everyone I spoke to. Um, maybe, I mean, maybe most grateful to people like um, sort of low paid precarious workers who, who gave up their time to, mm-hmm. to, um, to talk to me and their time is obviously very precious and um, it's quite brave of them to kind of speak in a, a book about <laughs> how bad their experience is. So, um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I really enjoyed the sort of, I know I'm biased because um, they're connected to the STUC, but I really liked to see Better Than Zero um, mentioned in it and United Hospitality. I thought those bits were really mm-hmm. sort of powerful um, and interesting. I thought in general the kind of breadth of experience that was included in the book from a reader's point of view made it so much more enjoyable and engaging to read. Um, And something that you touched on uh, that I'm keen to explore was that kind of around the service model versus the organising model, which for people that work in the trade union movement or involved in the trade union movement will be aware that that's been a debate that's that's been around for a long time. From reading your book, you you touch on the merits of both, but you discuss in depth the need for deep organising. Can you tell us a bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, so so the term deep organising is obviously not my term. Um, it kind of primarily comes from Jane McAlevey, the American um, union organiser and writer. Um, and essentially, you know, it, it refers to the, the work of actually kind of building power um, within and between um, workers in a kind of meaningful way and, and, and crucially reaching out to like new workers beyond the established union base and kind of the idea that they will be the the sort of maintenance and future of the union movement you know it can't survive just based on kind of the handful of really politically engaged people that you'd get in kind of different workplaces but certainly what the kind of most of the research and young workers themselves said um was that it's actually like seeing the the kind of visible organizing and winning um that creates new trade unionists and and crucially for me that sustains them so this idea that you don't just kind of um fight fires when someone comes to you with an individual grievance you you know the union kind of just in some cases at the moment will deal with that grievance and and will win will win on the grievance which is great you know that improves that one worker's kind of life um and, and situation but um what's really important for me is that um that's an opportunity to kind of do a bit of political education and kind of collectivizing and say as you you kind of picked up on from the extract at the beginning you and say to them this isn't about your one bad apple boss it's about the kind of structure of society and this union is the answer to that and you know that's what makes them kind of stick around and become trade unionists and like future leaders rather than just being people that are kind of um arriving when they need a bit of advice and then sort of dipping out again afterwards um so that that to me is is crucial both in terms of kind of how you attract um, young workers and also like how the movement survives um you know built on the kind of power that those people have, have um, developed mm-hmm. yeah i think a lot of that as well ties in um with the leadership election with for unite that's that's just passed uh, for folk that listening who may not know the election was between sharon graham steve turner Gerard coin and was reported by some in the press as a battle over the future of the Labour Party and between left and right. Although the reality is obviously a bit more complex than that, um, Shannon Graham's campaign focus was on deep organising and Shannon was subsequently elected as the new 
General Secretary of Unite suggesting that this message perhaps resonated with, with members. Do you feel like there's an emerging consensus around deep organising, especially among young people? And do you have any thoughts on, on Sharon's election at all? I think it's an interesting question because I'm, I'm pretty sure if you spoke to the majority of kind of young workers, um, both engaged or sort of not engaged in the union movement, I'm not sure they would kind of come up with that terminology but I think there probably would be a consensus that they're most kind of switched on by seeing unions like when and be sort of fighting forces um as opposed to just kind of seeing them um as service providers you know there is a there's a um bit in the book where I talk about kind of my experience of sort of friends and people my age saying to me you know I, and, and these are people who kind of know about unions and are sort of um, ostensibly a bit politicised. And they'll say, oh, I, I would be in my union, but it doesn't really do anything. Um, and I, to me, that's that's them sort of criticising the service model, actually, even if they're not kind of putting it in that, that terminology. Um, so so I think there probably is a kind of um, consensus, even if it's not put in those, those terms. Um, and I think we see that um, in the kind of newer sort of unions and union organizing models that have sprung up but then there's also within traditional union movement structures um as rachel mentioned like better than zero and unite hospitality who are um kind of moving towards that deep organizing model um and being a bit sort of more creative and agile than other bits of the kind of traditional union movement have perhaps been able to be um so yeah i think kind of i suppose that links to my main reflection on the unite leadership election which is um, that, as you sort of touched on, the, a lot of the media coverage of that um, sort of suggested that it was like a huge surprise or a huge upset. Um, and I thought that was really interesting because certainly the people that I kind of know, like on the ground or sort of ordinary members, it, it wasn't really a surprise to them. Like it wasn't a foregone conclusion either, but they definitely felt like she was in the race um, because they could see her sort of ground game and her, you know, how much support she was amassing among members. Um, so that disconnect between the sort of top bit of the, the union that's speaking to legacy media and the sort of um, on the ground grassroots bit, I think, is um, is really interesting and, and does speak to that sort of difference in um, perspective, I think, from sort of ordinary young members who are, are crying out for that deep organising. And Moving on to your section about um, a liberatory unionism, um, how would you sort of define that or um, explain to listeners what a liberatory unionism is? Because I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, so I, I suppose when I'm talking about a liberatory unionism, and this is in the context of um, sort of equality and diversity and representation, although um, the reason to use the kind of term of liberatory unionism is to actually kind of get away from those terms a little bit so um when yeah. i talk about liberty unionism i guess i'm talking about a, a unionism that puts kind of the the interests of marginalized workers right at the center of its work in a structural way and not just a kind of visual way um so kind of getting beyond um equality and diversity initiatives that sort of silo off um you know women's committee and their kind of interests and their individual sort of motions um, and, and putting that work right at the middle of um, what unions are, are doing. Um, and that requires, um, you know, an understanding that um, our class, our experience of class and our experience of our work is kind of um, 
you know, fundamentally shaped by our experience of being a, a woman or a queer person or a disabled person or a trans person or any any of those kind of factors. Um, and that's something I think parts of the union movement haven't always understood and in some cases still don't quite understand. Um, so really that's at the core of kind of, for me, what a liberatory unionism is, is like an understanding of exactly that fact that you cannot separate those two things out um, and that the experience of a working class black woman, for instance, will be different than the experience of a working class white man. Um, mm. and, and I think, yeah, as, as I say, that's kind of a challenge, I think, for some people still. Um, so I sort of in the book situate unions on the whole, obviously, as a generalisation, as being sort of on a journey um, towards that, but perhaps not quite, not quite there yet. Um, but I think they recognise that they need to be kind of um, getting, getting there. <laughs> yeah, when I was reading about this, the, the chapter about a liberatory unionism, it does mention the Glasgow women's strike, and that was something that really struck me in the way in the press it wasn't really reported on as much. And I like your quote, you're quoted saying um, it was perhaps too working class. What was the phrase again? Sorry. Um, yeah, I don't have it in front of me, but I think it's like I said, the women are too, or their cause is like too female to be considered a working class cause, and they're too working class to be considered a feminist cause. Um, that's yes, a paraphrase, uh-huh. but it's something something like that. Yeah, yeah, around those lines, thanks. Um, yeah, I thought that was really interesting with regards to the Glasgow women's strike. I mean, the Glasgow women's strike was absolutely huge. Like, I, w- I wasn't working in the trading movement at that time, but I went down to George Square and um, to see all the women coming into George Square on their march, and it was, like, overwhelming in a sense. Like, I found myself tearing up on the street because I found it so moving and so powerful. Is that sort of how you see a liberatory unionism being, this sort of, like, collective action of women workers? Yeah, I think... Um... The, yeah, the reason I kind of um, highlighted them as an example is for exactly that kind of reason that you've pulled out that that quote there in terms of how they were covered. There wasn't really a framework for covering them as like a feminist trade unionist movement. There was sort of only like these silos that the press felt able to put them in in terms of like, um, you know, being like a sort of puppets of the trade union movement, which I think is quite a sexist kind of um characterization um or you know they wouldn't be focusing at all on the kind of gendered aspect of their work so so there wasn't really an ability for us to kind of talk about that in the sort of whole intersectional sense that um that existed in um so yeah for me that you know that's an example of kind of um liberatory unionism in action but i think not everyone um could kind of see that i think some of the really clear examples of what it might look like actually come from the states because they've got the situation there where you're um, healthcare is contingent on your union membership in so many cases. So, you know, there's really clear examples of kind of how, how um, queer organizing has kind of intersected with union organizing um, because of how how kind of relevant that is to your healthcare. So fighting for um, like trans healthcare to be included in kind of um, like union healthcare agreements and allowances and stuff. So so the, the state kind of provides a really good example, I think, of what it could look like because they have no choice but to recognise that their sort of identity as a queer person or a trans person is completely like tied up and actually contingent on their experience as a, a worker and a member of a trade union. Um, so, yeah, so that, I think that's quite a helpful example for thinking about what it might actually look like in practice. Yeah, that's really interesting. 
I guess from what we're saying about um, women workers and women workers being sort of overlooked sometimes, and there's a lot of parallels with how her, our own General Secretary Ros Fourier has talked about her first workplace. So she began work in the civil service and um, she wasn't asked to join the union in her first role. And she's quoted in an article in Tribune saying that she felt that she was naturally someone who would have joined, but almost felt as though it wasn't for the likes of me. Which is quoted directly as saying that. And now, sort of decades on, how does this compare with your experiences of your as a young worker and a woman, and also people you interviewed's experiences of trade unions? Yeah, I mean that that experience that Ros recounts kind of chimes almost almost exactly with my first experience, um, sort of after graduation of a first like full time job. Um, tried to join the union um I actually I kind of opened the book by recounting this experience but essentially um it was quite a well unionized sort of public sector workplace and so as part of the induction the union did get five minutes to to talk to you and um kind of tell you what they were all about and try and encourage you to join um and I, I remember the the union rep sort of saying to me at the end of that like you're probably not interested in this and like trying to um spend more time talking to the other um, men that were in the induction who actually didn't seem that interested at all um, and I was kind of predisposed to join the union for the reasons I described earlier in terms of my kind of background of it just being something that I would do anyway um, but also because kind of directly before that I'd been working um, or, or I'd been an elected rep in a student's union so I had a kind of union like background um, and and actually like skills that the union in that workplace could have used and drawn upon um, but they just took one look at me and sort of decided it wasn't my kind of thing and then sort of <laughs> to add insult to injury when I said oh actually I do really want to join and the guy kind of you know was a bit sheepish because he realized what had happened um, he then like came to my office and, and by way of sort of apology um, gave me like an unmarked brown envelope with a tin of shoe polish in it <laughs> it was it was like <laughs> shoe polish that was branded with the union's old logo like <laughs> so not even the one that was like currently the logo at the time but like the old logo um and <laughs> I think that that kind of for me like encapsulated a whole lot of these issues which is like young workers and I think probably particularly young women and also other kind of workers of marginalized backgrounds um I think probably do look at unions and think of you know shoe polish with out-of-date logos on it sometimes um and so um, I suppose one of the big aims of the book is to like say to marginalised workers, like unions are for you and you need to be in there sort of shaping them into something um, different if that's where they're at. Or, you know, that there are all these good examples of unions who have moved beyond that, who really want you, <laughs> really want you in there in the middle of um, in the middle of the action. Um, but certainly I think the idea that the union is for a different type of worker um, kind of did come up a lot and it comes up a lot in the the research as well that the TUC and stuff have done um of of you know young workers not being hostile towards unions but thinking that they mm. either kind of actually cannot join because they, there's not a union for them um or thinking in a kind of more um abstract sense that it's not for the, the type of person that they are um so i think both of those things are sort of challenges that the the movement needs to to meet I think your shoe polish story definitely illustrates how perhaps like a lot of people feel. Um, I know a lot of young workers in particular can can often feel like an afterthought, um, which I think kind of ties in nicely with another question that we were keen to kind of um, touch on around the gig economy, which is something that you speak quite extensively about in the book. Do you have any examples of groups or union projects that young people can, can look to to help push back against bad bosses and the gig economy? 
Mm. So I think the first thing to say about the gig economy, which um, which I say in the book, is that it's kind of this like new sort of um, like trendy name for something that has actually existed forever, and it's particularly existed for like marginalised workers, like we've just been talking about. So you know, like women cleaners and carers, for instance, or like migrant um, kind of workforces, um, historically like have always been on insecure contracts and. Um, kind of precarious um, arrangements. So uh, when we talk about the gig economy, I think it's important to recognise that it's, it's definitely like an expansion of something that's always existed. It's not something that kind of young workers are uniquely experiencing for the first time. But what's different is that they're more likely to be experiencing that in a range of different workplaces. So now we see in like universities and charities and all these other types of workplaces that are now kind of um, embracing those sorts of arrangements so zero hours contracts and and secure kind of short-term contracts and that kind of thing Um, and I think there are loads of examples of where um, where unions have kind of fought successfully on that I mean we've already mentioned um, better than zero and unite hospitality but I think they're two really good examples that come from within the sort of traditional trade union movement Um, Better Than Zero in particular, I think, um, have managed to really tap into something where they are now, I think if you spoke to kind of any hospitality worker, certainly in Glasgow or Edinburgh, um, you know, 99% of them, I think, whether or not they know anything about trade unions or whether or not they're kind of politicised young people um, will know the name of Better Than Zero and will kind of know that it's a place that they can go if something happens to them. Um, and they do that in a very kind of like way that's very natural to them. So they'll send like a Facebook message to Better Than Zero and Better Than Zero have this a kind of structure where they're able to be really quick and responsive to those concerns. So rather than sort of traditional unions saying, you know, you need to have been a member for X number of months before we'll be able to get involved, um, Better Than Zero kind of managed to be agile and, and proactive and sort of as soon as something comes into them they're able to kind of get into action and um you know go and take sort of direct action or name and shame the the outlet or the bosses um and I think all of that kind of um is really instructive for the the wider union movement because we can see in how much they've grown and how, how kind of um famous or infamous they've become in in um, Scotland that um that exactly what we were saying at the beginning like that's what kind of young people want and need that that's what um you know gets them involved and keeps them involved is is that kind of um action and crucially it, it also works <laughs> it's also you know better than zero I've got kind of a huge list of um kind of restaurants and things that they've managed to get them to change policy and to reinstate workers and to raise their pay and all of that kind of thing so um so what they're doing um both works and kind of um yeah recruits and retains um young workers so i think they they provide a really good example that people can look to for um how how union models can adapt to the kind of um proliferation of the gig economy yeah, I feel I feel as though that kind of quick call to action that Unite Hospitality and the Better Than Zero are really, really good at doing is definitely something that unions can can take a note from. What should unions be doing to recruit and retain young workers? Like you mentioned in your book that young people are the least likely of any age group to join a union. So what can they what can unions be doing to to ensure that they not only recruit more young members but retain those members? Yeah, so I think for me that's a question that kind of um can be answered on two different levels. So on one level there's sort of 
you know, quick fixes, quite small kind of logistical or branding type things that unions could be doing differently. So, um, you know, just kind of um, sort of showing, not telling. So showing examples of young workers doing stuff and um, highlighting things like better than zero um, ch- changing some of their policies so that um, you can get really kind of quick, immediate um help and action um so that maybe you can um join online you know in some cases rather than having to go along to meetings and fill in paper forms and stuff like that I think all of that's important um but for me the kind of main thing is like a question about um industrial strategy and like what kind of workplaces um and what kind of workers the union movement is working for and so when we talk about this sort of servicing model what what we're talking about there is um unions working for their existing members who are paying fees who are kind of um concentrated in particular workforces that have traditionally always had strong union representation um and of course unions exist to work for those people and they can't kind of ignore that workforce and and um and and not not do what that workforce needs but i think that um there's a real reticence um understandably to um kind of do the investment needed to go out beyond your existing membership and to say to new young workforces in sectors that have never had union representation to workers that have never had any relationship to trade unions at all um you know we we can be your union and and you need to join us and there there are barriers to that obviously in terms of anti-union laws and things but there are also um there are also ways around around that um but i think there's you know i understand why there's such a, a kind of fear um of doing that but to me it would pay off um hugely if if unions kind of took that risk and did that upfront investment um to reach new workers and to get into new sectors and workforces like retail like hospitality like care work it's interesting thank you so i particularly liked the section where you said in the book no amount of business coaching instagram aestheticized career books or cardiovascular exercise can compete with a union i think that's so true you know unions are the strongest way to fight back against bad work um, and an unequal society ultimately so i guess what i wanted to ask is what is your advice for younger trade unionists that are wanting to get involved or that are having issues at work what would be sort of your main advice to them I mean, I suppose my main advice to young workers in general who aren't necessarily trade unionists is exactly what you've just said. Um, I think there's like a, a real, it's very obvious that young people are dissatisfied with work and like with society because we see them putting their energy into like, you know, um, climate striking or tenants unions, for instance, um, or even like electoral figures we've seen in the last few years, you know, big kind of youth um turnout and elections and stuff so they're like they are there for the taking they are people who've recognized that the work and life is unfair and that there's something going on there that needs to be tackled but at the moment when they're looking for an answer it's not like the traditional trade union movement necessarily that they're turning to it is what you've said there Rachel about like individual solutions of um kind of you know the the way we see like self-help workbooks at the top of um books sales um listings or we see like a sort of increase in Instagram influencers offering work coaching and like personal um personal goal setting sessions and stuff um so so that would be my advice to young workers who are dissatisfied is that like you'll never solve those problems in that individual way with um you know books and uh, Instagram or whatever you'll only 
be able to tackle them collectively through a, a union. Um, and, and my advice for young trade unionists who are already involved um, is as simple as like just kind of getting into the action like I think um it's I think sometimes you know depending on your union that can be difficult because um in some cases because of this servicing model it's like you sign up and then you're kind of just receiving information and there's not necessarily an obvious way for you to to get involved but fundamentally unions are you know democratic um organizations in the same way that we kind of believe in the power of collective action of the union movement to transform society um, we can also believe in that sort of collective action within unions and that sort of struggle within union structures um, to make the voices of, of young workers and marginalized workers heard and kind of central um, so, so that would be my advice is like find out kind of where where to go and how to be in the middle of the the action and then um and then you know shape it to to be the union that you want it to be um and to be the kind of force in society that you that you want it to be i think that's pretty much all our questions unless eve you've got anything else that you would like to mention that we've not mentioned so far um i don't think so i think that's a really good kind of um whistle stop tour of the the book i suppose um just to do the kind of author plug i would say that um just to remind everyone that it's available from um pluto press it only costs 9.99 because it's quite a short um paperback so um, hopefully it's pretty accessible for people um, and you can get it directly from the publishers or from um, wherever you would get um, your books normally so um, yeah hope, hope that some people will um, want to read it off the back of this conversation definitely we'll, we'll pop a link in the in the bio as well um, for people that are wanting to check it out um, thank you so much for, for coming in and speaking to us um, that's been great yeah, it's been yeah thank you for having me it's been a really good conversation this podcast was hosted by Rachel Thompson um, and me, Ewan McLaren and edited by Karina Liptrot a colleague. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at our username at ScottishTUC Thanks for listening. See ya, thank you